Hi, this is Patty Lapone. This is Allison Janney. This is Matt Balmer. This is Donna Murphy. This is Nia Vardalis. This is Jesse Tyler Ferguson. This is Beanie Feldstein. I'm Octavia Spencer. This is Ben Platt, and you're listening to Little Known Facts with my favorite person on the planet, Alana Levine. A-OK. Welcome to Little Known Facts, a podcast where you will hear unfiltered, raw, honest, and uniquely funny interviews with artists you love as they talk about the art they love to make. I'm your host, Ilana Levine. Hey, I heard you need an inspiration. He's Ilana and friends with some revelations. Little known back to the day, every little thing's gonna be a-okay. Hey everyone, new episodes of Little Known Facts drop every Monday and you can find them on your favorite podcast provider. Also, if you go to the website, littleknownfactspodcast.com, you'll find behind-the-scenes photos, videos, and interviews, and lots more on the gallery page. And if you are loving these intimate, candid conversations with all the artists who come on the show, please head over to the contributions page. I depend on these donations to continue to bring you these interviews every week. So if you love the show, please donate. Little known fact about my guest today, when he first got to L.A., he and co-creator of Homeland, Howard Gordon, started a test prep company. Years later, they went on to create television history together. Welcome, Alex Gonza. A-OK. everyone. My guest today is an Emmy Award winner and the creator and executive producer of the hit Showtime series, Homeland. Earlier career credits include Beauty and the Beast, Sisters, The X-Files, Maximum Bob, Dawson's Creek, Wolf Lake, Numbers, Entourage, and 24. Welcome, Alex Gonza. Thank you, Alana. My pleasure to be here, really. Do you remember all of those things? Do you remember your first day on Beauty and the Beast? I must be so ancient. (laughs) People are like, now Beauty and the Beast. You know what? It's so current. They're going to be like, whoa, he did Homeland and that huge animated feature that's number one at the box office? Sadly, no. I I did the Beauty and the Beast television show, which was my very first staff job in television. I think it was 1984. Yeah, with Linda Hamilton and Ron Perlman. Both of whom I'm still in touch with. Both of whom are tremendous actors, both on stage and on screen. Oh, I, I, That's I, kind I, of a dream cast. It was a dream cast. It was a huge learning curve for, you know, I was partners with uh, Howard Gordon at the time, who I met in college. And uh, and instead of going to graduate school, we both decided to get in his little Datsun B210 and come to Hollywood on a complete lark. Uh, and, uh, and pretty quickly, we were working in television. It was amazing. So... That's kind of a love story I would love for us to get into, the Howard Gordon-Alex Gonza relationship. So before we kind of land you two showing up for Beauty and the Beast on your first day of television writing, I want to go back a little bit to your childhood because then we'll get to college where you guys met and then on to what brings you here today, which is like the number one show in the universe as far as I'm concerned. I'm not saying it's a fact. I'm saying it's a feeling. Good, good. Well, reach out your hand and lead me where you will. <laughs> I will. So you grew up in San Francisco. I did. And I'm going to say three words, and I want you to tell me what comes to mind when I say Gonza Brothers Productions. 
Well, we used to make little films together when we were kids, um, and uh, you know, just these little action adventure movies that we made around. My father had a beach house down in uh, down in Aptos, California, which is just south of Santa Cruz, and um, you know, I was by far the least. Uh, the least talented of the three brothers. I mean, my brother Andrew was the director, and he was incredible. And Charles, who is a performer by character, he was incredible. And I was just trying to stay up with those guys. They were so creative, and we we made some pretty interesting little movies together. And when you look at the work you're doing now on Homeland, do you see ways in which those early films influenced how you do your job today and not, do you steal from them? Not not even remotely. Okay. <laughs> One has okay. nothing to do with the other. Okay. I, I will say, though, it is interesting that, uh, you know, the, the sort of the most unlikely people wind up doing the things that they are not particular. They didn't demonstrate early talent for. Uh-huh. Um, my, you know, my brother is now an architect, which is a which is a form of, of, of art. My youngest brother, Charles, who is by far the most talented artistically, you know, is a speech therapist in, uh, you know, in the public school system in New York. So God only knows why the universe, you know, lands you where you wind up. So were your parents creative? Tell me about your parents. My parents were, were, were the antithesis of creative. My father was, a, was an emergency room doctor. Um, my mother was a first-generation immigrant. Um, she came from China. She was born in Peking. Her parents fled the Russian Revolution. They were white Russians. They fled the Russian Revolution to, okay. uh, to Peking. That's where she was born. And, uh, you know, she came and, and lived the immigrant story in the United States. So your dad was American. My dad was American. He was born in Brooklyn, although his his family was, you know, first generation from Estonia. Wow. Were they political? They were staunch conservatives at the time. My mom especially, you know, having, having you know, her family had endured the, the, you know, the revolution in 1917. And then when they were in China, they left there because of the because of the revolution in China. So she, you know, she came with that immigrant fear of anything that smelt of communism or socialism and still and still is that way to that to this day. How old was she when she came here? 14. And did you know your grandparents also? Did they all come together? I never knew my grandfather. He died in China. But I knew my grandmother, Babushka, very well on my mom's side. And I knew my grandmother on my dad's side. His father also died of a heart attack um, before I knew him. So... And what about language? Did she learn English because she came so young by the time you guys were born? Was she someone who spoke English well, or did you feel like a translator My, for my her? mom always says that she speaks five, ang- five languages and English the goodest. <laughs> so she, 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 speaks, she speaks Russian, German, Mandarin, English, and Russian. Did okay. I say Russian? You d- yeah. yeah. So you grew up in outside Santa Cruz, or did you grow up in the city no, of San up, Francisco? I, I was born in the Philippines, and then... M- Wait, moved. what? My dad was stationed at Subic Bay. He was, uh, he was in the Navy. Oh. Where, where, so, um, was, he, was he a doctor he was in the a do- Navy? He was a doctor in the Navy, and then, uh, and then they moved when I was a year old to San Francisco. Okay, so Andrew and Chaz were born... They were in... born in San Francisco. So you went to Princeton, which is not the easiest school to get into, so you had some smarts. I was a surfer. Until, in fact, I started surfing early, and I was a surfer until I was about, you know, 12 years old. I spent all my time in the ocean. So you got the surfing scholarship to I, Princeton. I, I, did, I, did not, I did not get that at all. I got the, I got the my dad said, you are not going to turn into a surf bum living in Santa Cruz, California. Your so dad was tough. He packed me off to boarding school when I was 12 and a half. 
Did all of you go to boarding we school all, or just we, you? We all went to boarding school. We all went to Groton in Massachusetts. Oh, so you had an East Coast upbringing of, of another sort. It was such a different time. I mean, literally, my parents put me on the plane by myself when I was 12 and a half years old, flew to Boston, where we were met by a friend of the family who I never had met before who took us to school. Wow. So it was it was a different era. Was it traumatizing? It was traumatizing, I have to say. I, you know, I had I had I had, you know, shoulder length white blonde hair and uh you know my freshman year roommate was Herbert L Smith the 4th from Oyster Bay Long Island. It was a culture shock. It was it was a clash of cultures. Wow. Yeah. Now, do you have friends to this day that you went to Groton with? You know, I, I have I have I you know, we are all fond of each other, but you know, our lives took us in such different directions. I mean, Herb, for example, got a seat on the stock exchange for his graduation present. I thought present. you made that name up. Yeah. Like, no. <laughs> you were just, for example, like a Herb, blah, 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 the yeah. fourth. That's hilarious. So, so you know, their, their lives, you know, they, they live their lives on Wall Street and, you know, and, and on the North Fork. Yes, and, um, as well they should. And I, uh, you know, I, I wound up back in Los Angeles. What's the age difference? Um, I, Andrew was there when I was there. He's my middle brother. Charles came much later. He, okay. was, he was the love child of of the of the marriage. Sweet. Yeah. So there was a love child that also got sent off. Yes, he got to sent boarding off school. Too. It was it was determined that it was good for all of us to have gone. So having a child yourself. Never in a million years would I have sent him to boarding school. Okay. Can you in like three sentences talk about why that would be so? Because I would have missed him desperately. Yeah, that's what I think about. Yeah. Like I'm sure my kids might have a tremendously fun time and be happy at boarding school. I would not survive and, and it. Mi- and might have been more independent and might have gotten a better education. Right. But my God, to miss those years, they, they go by so quickly. And, um, you know, look, once they're at college, it's 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 just a different animal. Right. It's done. So you did go to Princeton, not on a surfing scholarship, kind of whipped into going. Yes. But it turned out to be like a great place for you. Well, the you know, let, let me say the education at boarding school was so first rate, beyond first rate, so that Princeton was really not a difficult. Hard. It was not hard. You know, I I, I had uh, I had learned a work ethic and uh, and and the training was so strong, and your writing skills were developed. So by the time I got to Princeton, I you know, I, it, it was not it was not a challenge. Now, were you there when Brooke Shields and Dean Kane were there? I was there when Brooke Shields was there. Certainly was. Were you guys friendly? We were not at all friendly. Did not know each other. Okay. She's right. a great girl. She is a great girl. She's a great girl. I could yeah. see her as an operative of some sort. She could be. She could be. She was, you know, she was a luminary on campus. I mean, it was the Brooks, the Brooks Shields sightings were, were always noted. Well, I have many Brooks Shields story. When I was in high school, Brooke went to the same high school as my high school boyfriend. So I did not go to this private school, right. but my boyfriend did. And so she and I and our two boyfriends double dated to the prom. Oh my god. And this is at the height of Brooke Shields's I mean she's remains a gorgeous woman, but this was Brooke Shields when her Calvin Klein Jean ad campaign yeah. had just unfolded. Like perfection right, of a human right. being. And I'll never forget like oh and she took us to Elaine's afterwards. Like everyone else was going <laughs> down to the Jersey Shore on like, you know, motorcycles and we went to Elaine's. Perfect. Um, Yes, it was perfect. And I just remember we're in the bathroom and, you know, I'm in kind of like my really not great, like, teen-ex shopping mall gown, doing my best, doing my best. And she's just perfection. And I just remember looking in the mirrors. We're both fixing our makeup, which she was barely wearing, of course. And I just remember her looking in the mirror, this flawless, perfect species going, it was going better at home. And I just thought, (laughs) really? (laughs) If that's an example of it was going better at home, then I'm actually going home. 
Right. And that was right. it. Because she was also the nicest person on the yeah. planet, I just, just to I add just remember, insult to injury. I just remember how tall she was. Yeah. But gorgeous. Yes. And, um, and, and tough for her to be there at school, I imagine. You know, the center of attention wherever she went. I know. She handled it well. Yeah. So... Well, we're done. It was really fun catching up and <laughs> talking about Brooke because that's what we – it's all about the six degrees of that's separation. Right. That's right. So you go to Princeton and what was your intention when you got there? Were you a writer already in your mind? You know, I've been doing a lot of thinking about this because my son is about to graduate from Princeton and, and uh, wow. at, uh, a bit at loose ends, uh, you, know, uh, you know, trying to decide what he wants to do with himself. And, and he has this – fiction about me that I knew exactly what I was going to do that I you know that my path was charted for me that I came to Princeton as a writer and I was going to be a writer and I, I I aspired to be a writer but I'd never written anything that was worthy of reading um certainly not before I got to Princeton and you know and I would say it's debatable about whether I wrote anything there that was worth reading I was an English major I wrote a creative thesis I wrote a novel for a thesis do you uh, know the title of it it was it was called Jeremy the name Jeremy, but I misspelled it. <laughs> no, you didn't. That's I, how your Jeremy spells it. I, it was E-Y at the end. And my wife, who looked at goes, Alex, this is not how you spell Did you meet her Jeremy. at Princeton? I did not meet her at Princeton. Okay. I, met, I met my wife my wife many years later. She had to point out the she, truth. She, she, that was the only Those word she later. read of the entire thing, <laughs> the title, which was which She's was like, misspelled. if this is any indication of what's between the two covers, right. no. So that's in a drawer somewhere still? It is in a drawer somewhere still. I keep everything. I keep everything. I'm a hoarder. It's all. It's all. It's all in a little leather suitcase somewhere. Um, so that if you had to run out of the house, you yes, just grab that, that that's suitcase. The, that's the first thing I would grab. It's still going to be published somewhere. Uh, no, you know, the, you know, the, the 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 highlight of my of my Princeton time was my professors and my thesis advisor was Joyce Carol Oates. You know, she right. she was directly responsible for me becoming a television writer because. Uh, first of all, she didn't think I had enough talent to be a novelist. <laughs> but more importantly, more importantly, it was through her that I met Howard Gordon. Wow. Can yeah. you tell us the story? I, I, will, I will tell you the story briefly. Um, the story is, is that I wrote a novel for my thesis. Jeremy, Jeremy E.Y. E, with an E.Y. And um, Do you know how many people are going to name their son after they listen to this uh, or daughter Jeremy E.Y.? Nobody. Nobody, It's like hopefully. having Madonna <laughs> on my podcast. Yes. Um so I, I spent I spent uh, I, I took a year off between my junior and senior years, and I essentially spent that year trying to figure out what I was going to write about. And uh, you know I went on a bunch of adventures, and I was with a climbing team in the Himalayas, and I traveled through Asia for for six months. And uh, I came back that summer before my senior year, and I began to write the first chapter, which I wrote and rewrote and wrote again and rewrote. Knowing that Joyce Carlos was my thesis advisor, I wrote it for about six months, 12 pages, six months of work, the first chapter of the novel. To say I thought it was the most brilliant thing that had ever been written would also be an understatement. I thought, my God, I am on my way. This is the most incredible piece of work. I mean, I'm a genius. And uh, so finally, I, I got the balls to turn in the first chapter to Joyce. This was in sort of early December. Now, the thesis was due in March. That's four months later. So I turned in the first chapter to, uh, to Joyce and, you know, I waited and I waited. And finally, two weeks later, about the 14th of December, I still remember this day, you know, I get a call from the creative writing department, you know, Joyce would like to meet to talk about your first chapter. And my heart was just, you know, was just beating so loud. And uh, the meeting was in the afternoon and it had rained all day. But then 
actually at about one o'clock, one thirty, the sky opened up you know, in those in that beautiful way that happens on the East Coast, and the sun was just crashing through the clouds. And I remember walking to the Creative Writing 185 Nassau on the Princeton campus, and it was just, you know, the roofs were dripping with rain, and it was a beautiful thing. I think it just, it could not have been a better beautiful omen. Beautiful shot. Just a beautiful, just a great, great omen. It was, everything was cinematic. It was perfect. So I get to Joyce's office. I knock on the door. She says, come in. And I sit down, and she is completely backlit by the sun. And she had these huge owl glasses, which were also reflecting the light. So I couldn't really see her eyes. <laughs> well, that's and, what happens when you see God. That's right. And all I saw on the middle of the table was the, was my 12 pages that had been honed to within an inch of their lives. And I sat down and we exchanged some pleasantries. And then she just passed the, the chapter over to me. And she said, well, I think we can do better than this, Alex. And... My heart just, I mean, the blood came down out of my head, neck, and shoulders, and I was, you know, as devastated as you could possibly be. I mean, she was essentially saying, you got to start again. You got to try something else. And uh, then she did the thing that changed my life. She got up from their desk, and she went over to her bookshelf, and she pulled out a copy of Saul Bellow's The Adventures of Augie March, and she gave it to me and said, I really think you should read this. You know, there was stuff in your chapter that reminded me a little of Bellow. And, uh, you know, I think you should read it. And I never read any Bellow before. And I went home from that meeting and I read that book. And then I read every single Saul Bellow novel, you know, that, that he had written up to that point. Um, and I, for, for the next week, I literally just immersed myself in Bellow and was completely and utterly transported by that first book especially, but also by Humboldt's Gift, which I just adore. And I became a disciple of Bellow. And in fact, I became such an annoying disciple of Bellow that all my friends told me to just shut up. Like, would you stop talking about Bellow? And I couldn't help myself. I was like, you have to read this. This is the most incredible thing, the most amazing work. And a mutual friend of Howard's and mine, Hillary Lewis, said, Alex, look, I don't want to hear any more about Bellow, but there is another Bellow nut on campus, and it's Howard Gordon, and you have to meet him. So we sort of put it off for a long time, but ultimately we wound up meeting sometime in the early spring, and we just talked about Bellow all night, and we became very, very fast friends and close friends. And he always wanted to be a television writer, so he was the one that facilitated us moving out to... So he's like, let's do it, because this was your last year of school. This was our last year of school. So you loaded up. We both both had, you know, we were both headed to graduate school. I was going to go to Stanford. He was going to go to NYU. And we just said, are we really going to spend another two years in a gloomy graduate school room somewhere? You know, let's go to Hollywood. And that's what we did. And so you set up shop. Yes. And I don't know if this is mythology or true, but you had like an SAT prep yes, course we, that you created. Yes, we did. We, we started an SAT preparation course. You know, instead of going to work as waiters or bartenders, um, we thought we would capitalize on our Ivy League education in one form or another. Since it, it, it actually was of no value <laughs> In Hollywood. Nope. In <laughs> so, fact, you're doing us a disservice by having that that's, credential. Th- that's right. So we, we started a, an SAT prep company um, in which we, you know, reached out to all the private schools in the area and, and, and trumpeted our, our Ivy League credentials and our SAT scores, and we began tutoring kids. And in our very first class, there was the daughter of a producer who was looking for writers. And we had a, a script that we'd written, a St. Elsewhere spec script, and gave it to her. And the next thing we You're did— You were like, Sally, listen— 
if you fill in your name correctly, you're already <laughs> going to be a winner. I need you to get this to your dad. I mean, how does that really happen without it feeling you know, it was real, it was really Tori Wilder who it, we we did not solicit. You know, she she looked at us and he goes, "Come on, you guys, you guys don't want to be SAT tutors. What who, what do you really want to do?" Yeah. And we were like, "Well, we're trying to break into the television business." And she literally said, "My dad is a television producer. He has a new show coming." So it was just you know, it was such so Joyce Carol Oates. Tori Wilder, like if you look at the women oh. along the way, yes, is it Malcolm Gladwell? It's like you have to have ten thousand hours right. and luck. Yes, although it doesn't sound like you had the ten thousand hours we, yet. We, we, you we built had, them. We had on no, Beauty and the Beast. We had we had nowhere near ten thousand hours. I think we probably had about a hundred hours at that yeah. time writing together, and it was it was very uncertain as to whether we were actually going to be able to partner as writers because we had very different ideas about things and continued to have very different ideas about things for our first seven years together. In terms of what kind of things you wanted to write, you know, we were both good at different things. How would you describe that now? What's your great skill set and what's his great skill set that worked in terms of your creative process? You know, I would say we were equally, equally talented as writers. Um, my my work ethic was like I, I wanted to work a lot harder on stuff that Howard did. You cracked the whip more. I cracked the whip more. But Howard was an intensely social person. And he was such a great salesman. Just an attractive, super generous, charming. super charming person. I so, randomly met him in a cave in Israel where you think you're digging for like artifacts. And you find you out later like they put them there. So your kids think that <laughs> I found like half of yeah. the Holy Grail. But yeah, we met him there and he was actually charming in this dark cave yeah. as well. He was a sweetheart. He, he, he's charming everywhere. And, yes. and, 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 you know, you mentioned it as a love story. And I have to say, it really was a love story. He and I, we were, we were in love in, you know, in a way. And we really just, you know, we went through that first, you know, that first incredibly exciting time where you're, where, where you're, where you're, you know, your future just is uncharted. And, and we, you're driving on a lot. Yeah. And you have a parking spot. Yeah. And it, you're writing for television in yeah. a pretty short amount of time for it, people coming to Hollywood, it right? Was, it was it was it was lucky like you know it it really was and um you know, there's a great, there's a great commencement address. I, you know, I was in at Princeton with Michael Lewis, who's one of my heroes. I mean, if I, if I could trade my life for anybody's, it would be Michael Lewis. Um, and he just wrote, I mean, he, uh, he gave a whole uh, commencement address about luck at that school that everybody should look up online and read because it's just, it's a remarkable, it's a remarkable address. So you break in sort of easily for two young upstarts from you know, who just moved and drove in a Datsun. Right. And so the SAT program, that devolves, or do you hand it over to somebody else? Or We, we kept it going because we didn't trust, we didn't trust Beauty and the Beast. where we were. We didn't, tr- well, th- this was, that was actually Spencer for Hire, where we wrote a bunch of spec scripts for Spencer for Hire. That was, that was the first job. And then we got hired as staff writers on, on Beauty and the Beast after, after Spencer went off the air. You really start making a living pretty quickly going from television show to television show as a staff writer. We did. We we and and the living was the living was pretty good, you know, especially and we and we lived in Venice, California on Ozone Avenue for a lot of years in a very cheap in very cheap and tawdry circumstances. Um but we were right near the beach and And your uh, surfer and surfer Alex is back in action. I sur- I, surf, I surfed every day. And it was it was good. Life was good and fun. And you know, we were young, and you were in Hollywood. You know, it's a completely different environment in Los Angeles now. I mean, for a writer especially. It meaning well, you know, you used to be able to. You know, there used to be such a thing as a freelance writer, um, which is how we began. You know, where you would go into shows like Spencer for Hire and pitch an idea for an episode, and then you would get hired to write that idea. That does not exist. That anymore. model isn't the way it works it just, anymore. It just, just that doesn't work anymore that way. 
there was a moment where you guys split off and weren't working together, and then a moment where you came back together in terms of the serendipity of it all, which was 24. Right. My best job ever was working for Howard on 24. So now you're working for him. Right. I mean, that was the setup, right? That... He's kind of a big honcho on that show, and he hires you. Well, you know, we we had we had split on on X Files because Howard really wanted to stay on the X Files, and and Howard, you know, whatever conventional streak runs in both of us, it's wider in him, and he really enjoyed the security of you know a great show like twenty like uh, like the X Files, right? Um, and I just I just it wasn't. Are you it, not a sci-fi person I'm not, I'm at heart? Not, I'm not a sci-fi person. And neither is he, actually. But he... He liked the puzzle he, of he it. He liked the puzzle of it more than I did. And it was a very competitive environment. The in the writer's room oh, or the entire was, production? The, 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 whole, the whole thing. But in the writer's room, it was a really cutthroat staff. Um, and it was there, there wasn't a lot of... You know, let's help each other. It was it like was, that's a great idea. Yeah, I'd it, love to help you flesh that out. It was it was much more who's going to write the best episode and who's going to rise to the top here, and it was which is fine. And you know that some staffs work like that, and some staffs work well like that, and and some would argue it's the show turns out better when there's that sort of internal competition going on. But it was you know all those things together, and and the fact that he and I were having more and more difficult time writing each script, and I really wanted to get my own show on the air. Or our own show. Or were you positioned at that point to make that happen? Well, we were certainly positioned to write pilots and had been writing pilots even while we were doing other things. So, you know, had I just, you sold other pilots we along had, the way? We had sold other pilots along the way. But Maximum Bob was the first thing that you were able to get going on your own. That's the first thing. Although I, although I had written a couple of pilots before that that never sold. So Maximum Bob was the first. Got shot and made. Got shot and made and then turned into a series for a very brief amount of time. Right. But that, you know, anyone, even if you're not in this industry, right. understanding what it takes to get something on air, it's, you know, it's, yeah. it, usually you're just Sisyphus. You're pushing things up the hill and they just fall down. Well, so that I, I, I got, amazing. I got, I got, I got incredibly lucky because, first of all, I had the most amazing piece of source material in, in, in the Elmore Leonard novel. Right. Second of all, I had Elmore Leonard as a partner to help me write the thing. And third of all, Barry Sonnenfeld, who had just directed Men in Black, agreed to do it. So, you know, all those things, you know, that, that was a I – a, I had a lot of help pushing the rock up the hill. Were you devastated when it didn't continue? <laughs> I remember. I remember I had I – had, I was having dinner with, uh, with one of the directors who I think directed the first episode or the second episode after Barry, you know, did the pilot. It was John Coles and we were sitting there talking and I was saying, this is the most unbelievable thing. We're doing a show that we love. It is hysterically funny. We are having the best time in the story room. There's not a problem on the set. I get to go to Miami, which I love is where we shot the thing. And I came home after that conversation to Stu Bloomberg calling me from ABC telling me the show was canceled. Alex, I have some <laughs> bad news and some bad news. Which do you want to hear first? So, I'll take the it, bad it news. Was, it, was, it was definitely a show that was ahead of its time and that was on the run on the wrong network. And I would say the same thing for Wolf Lake. I, you know, I, I, I reassembled the whole staff from Maximum Bob for Wolf Lake, which was a show about werewolves. It was like, it was like True Blood on, on HBO, except it was on, except it was on CBS. I mean, one of the first scenes in Wolf Lake was, you know, a WA meeting. You know, a Wolf Anonymous meeting, you know, where you would stand up and say, hi, I'm, you know, I'm Alana Levine and I'm a wolf. Um, I am. That's are so you weird. You sort of look like a wolf. <laughs> I'm getting a blow dry later. It's going to be so much better for my benefit this yeah. evening. So so it was, again, another show that was completely misplaced on the on the wrong network. And then you join Howard on 24. And so do you feel like now he's your boss or does it not feel that way? 
Well, he was definitely my boss on 24. At that point, this was a number of years later. This was at least 10 years later. I'd written a bunch of pilots. I had gotten a couple made, including Maximum Bob and Wolf So you're Lake. still getting paid still to getting be a paid. writer. I'm, I'm, on, I'm on what's called an overall deal, which, which also doesn't really exist anymore. I want a strict development deal development you know and, and I wrote something for HBO that I really loved that didn't get made and so these are a series of really body blows um, and and then I was you know just frankly broke and Howard had been asking me to come on 24 f- since the beginning please come on the show please come on the show I said I can't do these thrillers I don't know how to do Not this my stuff thing. I don't know how to do it you boy know? were you wrong so that I went to go work for him on 24 and you know I was there the seventh and the eighth seasons the last two seasons arguably the, the worst seasons on the show good for you though um, but uh, but it, he was a great boss and the room was rocking you know of so many smart people in there and to tell 24 episodes in real time, a thriller like that is the hardest thing you'll ever do. Well, I can only yeah. imagine. Yeah. I mean, it would certainly be the hardest thing I ever did because yeah. I'm not a writer, but that just seems compelling and insane it is, as it, a concept. It, it, it is insane. It, it, it was insane. So but, when you then have this opportunity, and and I know you guys saw the original material as, you know, the Israeli show that it was based on and and this thing of miraculously the way things come together, the luck part was that. Showtime said go for it, and you guys were able to do it together. Right. Did you feel like 24 and what you were expected to write on that show was suddenly this great quick education in terms of the kind of show you were about to write? Well, there's there's no question that, that Homeland was at some level was, was, was conceived as a, in reaction to 24. Uh-huh. Um, obviously, we were brought the project. Or I was not brought the project. Howard was brought the project by by Rick Rosen, who was our agent at WME. He he had a relationship with Keshet. Is there that was, the Israeli production that's, that's company? That's the Israeli production company, correct? And there was no there was no show yet. We we just saw the pilot script, um, and it came to Howard, and Howard read it and said, "Look, you know, can can I bring Alex on on this? I think we'd be good together." And we you know it, it was a nice reunion, and we'd had such a fun time on Twenty Four together. So, you know, I really credit Howard and Rick for you know for for bringing me into the mix. The downside for Howard is that he was such a big cheese at Fox. You know, he, he'd been there since the X-Files. He had never left Fox and, and had just risen and risen and risen in that organization and was one of the jewels in the crown of their, you know, of their writer, executive producers that, you know, it became very clear and was part of the deal that if we did not sell Homeland to a network, that Howard could not be involved in the show. Okay. Because he was too valuable to get involved in a little show at Showtime. I see. So so once it didn't sell at ABC so and So you NBC, went to all the usual suspects. So we went to all the usual suspects. We wrote the thing on spec. So we didn't sell it first. We wrote the thing on spec. And uh, and we went to the, all the usual suspects. And it was one pass after the next. In fact, even John Landgraf passed at FX. Uh, and, uh, and we – Howard had a previous relationship with David Nevins because of 24 – they were uh, Nevins was at Imagine when Twenty Four first came into being. So you know, David got the script and and immediately said, uh, "This is going to be my first project." That's incredible. Right? And then Fox went so far as to say Howard was not even allowed to come to the set during the shooting of the pilot. What? Well, they just did. They they really wanted to make a very clear demarcation. You know that he he was going to develop other shows for the big broadcast. So he'd you come know. in with like sunglasses yes, and hats he, he through would, the back, he, like through the kitchen. He 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 did he did. Very so, Elizabeth so, so, Keen. Yeah. So so the truth is is that um, 
you know, that, that Howard has been a great consigliere since we wrote the pilot together. And I kept saying, my God, Howard, come on. This is what we've always wanted to do. Right. Could he not leave that contract or they, he could, they, but they it was too... They just had a big gun to his wallet. You know, <laughs> and and by the way, that, that it was the same... It was, the, it was interestingly enough because we, we were relitigating the same conversation we had had on the X-Files, which was, let's go get our own show on the air that we're proud of. And here we were having it. Now we've written the show we're proud of. Now it turned out really well. Let's do it together. And, um, you know, he just, uh, I don't know, he just. Is uh, he, at, I mean, I can have Howard on the show too. Do you think he has made peace with that? I think he's made peace with it. I think, you know, look, the, the other thing is he ran 24 for at least six of those eight years, the last six years. And if he feel, if he felt at the end of those eight years, anything like I'm feeling right now, I can understand why he wouldn't. Why want to he do wasn't it again. ready to? Yeah. It's just, it's just, it's a brutal. It, look, it's an incredibly rewarding. You know, just it's such. Look, but, you're on this podcast. Yes, clearly, I'm, I, I'm. Look, I'm doing this. <laughs> um, but it is, it is, it is brutal. In fact, you know, we we do this very funny thing where you know where I I take a picture of myself before the season starts every year and a picture after the season is over, right after it's over, and it is, you know, I'm like Obama. I'm I was going to say it's like the presidents. You're like. Oh. They're totally great. So totally you were blonde great. with like a long ponytail you when ha- it started you, you and ha- now. You have no idea how good I looked <laughs> eight years ago. <laughs> well, I would feel remiss if we didn't talk about Homeland, not just because my husband played Agent Conlin this Brill- past Brilliantly season. played Brilliantly. Agent Conlin. And I have to say, in, in full disclosure, I have watched it religiously from day one. Oh, it has been my favorite show. What was it about the show? I'm so this. You know, I. You, I'm sure you're always trying to. I'm trying to figure out like what and 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 especially this season, which seems to have really captured people's imaginations in a way in that all different ways. In, you know, I, I'm just trying to figure out what it was. Okay, well, we talked about this before we went on right. air, which is my entree onto your show was Mandy. That I had seen Sunday in the Park with George as a young person. It was so seminal in my life as a piece of theater. God, it is so and funny, Alana. I have to say that, you know, I saw that in 1983, 82, 83, I can't remember. What, and it was the same thing. It was that piece of work with Mandy and Bernadette mm-hmm. about making art. It slayed me. What I've loved about your show, I love the Brody romance. I love all of it. Um, and, and the idea of who's... No, the cat and mouse that's constantly going on is their relationship. The idea of a younger woman and an older man finally being portrayed in Hollywood, not as a couple, but as colleagues who are really respecting each other intellectually. And it never gets weird. It keeps changing in terms of a different kind of love affair. Right. I just thought, what a beautiful way to do this with such integrity. Right. Well, that that, that was that was really, you know, the. One of the very first ideas was, um, you know, we wanted to tell this story about a mentor and his protege um, in the intelligence community. And uh, and we, we, we clearly patterned, you know, the character of Saul Berenson after George Smiley in, in, in the John le Carré novels. And the very first, you know, it's, it's so interesting. This, again, is, you know, back to the luck question. You know, we called, you know, Carrie Claire in the first drafts of the script. Did you really have her in mind? Absolutely Why? had her in mind. Why? Because we, 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 had... we'd just seen Temple Grandin. And we knew we wanted a bipolar character, and we saw we thought, oh my God, can you portray somebody with a condition so compellingly? In the <laughs> Israeli version, does that there, character there, there, have, there, is there a bipolar there's, character? There's, there's no bipolar character, and there's no woman. Central but you want you had an idea about this. We we had an idea about that, and 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 then the Saul character, you know, the, uh, you know, we just like 
my initial thought was Mandy Patinkin. How did you get him? The way the cast came together, there's so many stories about that too. But but you know the Mandy story is uh, we want to cast Mandy in the role, and uh, so you knew you wanted a rabbi. We want we wanted a rabbi. We and I said uh, the, my my first conversation with Mandy's agents was uh, he can come play the role. We want him, but he has to grow the beard, and it's because he played George Seurat with the beard. So I'm so cry. it was not, Mandy does not is not Mandy without the beard to me. I, I don't know who that is, but that, that's not Mandy. Won't even talk to him. Um, but both Showtime and Fox said absolutely not. You know, he's too much trouble. He leaves every show he's ever done. He'll make your life miserable, and uh, you know we're just not going to approve him. And I said to I said to them, and Howard said to them, you know, look, we can make it work. We're going to create a we're going to create the kind of creative environment on the show where somebody like Mandy will thrive. Because first of all, he's not the lead of the show. So he doesn't have to carry the whole thing on his shoulders. And second of all, I mean, just the world that the show was going to, was going to, you know, the, the world that we were going to dramatize, we felt would be very, you know, conducive to the way uh, Mandy thinks about the world. And did you sit down with him? We definitely sat down. We had a long conversation about it. But he, look, he was looking to get back in the game. You know, his reputation after he left those shows. Was that he was grumpy. Was it was grumpy. A and little that, grumpy. And, and, that, and, and, you know, and Mandy, you know, he also left a lot of money on the table when he left those shows. But, you know, his worldview just wasn't commensurate with that last show he was doing. Whatever that was, it was um, Criminal Minds, I yeah. guess. You know, and he was putting a lot of darkness out into the world, and that's not Mandy. But I got to tell you a great story about Mandy. Okay. I was at the final Grateful Dead concert in Chicago. Recently, like a year ago. This was a couple of years ago, a yeah. year ago, with my son. And uh, we went to go to the July 4th show, the, the last Dead concert. And uh, before the day before the show, we're wandering around Chicago, and we wander into the Art Institute, which I'd never been to before. And we're coming up to the second floor, and there it is, La Grand Jatte is right there in the art museum. I had no idea. And I was looking as I'd never seen the painting in real life. You know, I saw it on stage, obviously, but I never saw the thing in real life. And I was like, oh my God. I said, like, Willie, my son. I said, Willie, this is this is the painting that led right. to Mandy, that led to Saul. The whole so, show is based around in Sunday in the so, Park. So I immediately texted Mandy. I was like, Mandy, I'm standing in front of La Grand Shot. And he, the next thing I know, the phone's ringing. And he tells me in his research for the role, he approached the director of the art museum, and said, look, I want to spend the night with a painting. And they brought in a cot. <laughs> and Mandy spent an entire night weeping, praying, and sleeping with La Grande Jatte. That's incredible. Isn't that an amazing story? Yeah. So you, you now Speaks understand. Volumes. Now you understand that when you go see that, when you, when you saw that show, I mean, he was. He had slept with the he painting. He slept with the painting. It sounds like when you talk about the X-Files years prior, that wasn't a room that you wanted to emulate in terms of how you ran. If, if I read between right. the lines, not that that wasn't a productive room, as you describe, but it wasn't the kind of dad you wanted to be. So are you comfortable with authority? Were you always comfortable with authority? You know, my, my assistants made me a little pillow after the first season, <laughs> this little, little embroidered pillow, and said, I never wanted the job. I didn't ask for the job, and I'm not temperamentally suited to the job. And is that I think apt? It, I think it. You know, I, I think it is apt on 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 one level in that I am a very private person, and uh, you know the the people management side of the job I find the most difficult. Um, it's it's largely my job to say no, or this isn't good enough, or I'm going to do it myself, and that that 
when you're dealing with other creative people who feel proprietary and 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 who work very hard, that is a really hard thing to do. Mm. If it's you not know? your natural disposition, and I feel bad, you know, I, I it, like, you know, I, I, there's a tremendous amount of guilt and 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 hand wringing that goes into that, and it certainly did at the beginning. You know, I've gotten better at it. Of not like having a long preamble to the bad news, but just like you know what, or we just can't. or just suffering with it myself. Mm. You know, and 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 empathizing in a way. Um, you know, we we you know Howard had this. Howard has this big sign over his desk that I just love, which is you know work hard and be nice to people. And the be nice to people is really important. And so there there there's a way that you have to maintain the you know the um, the camaraderie of of a room. I mean, the, a room is a, such an interesting thing. A story room is such an interesting thing because, and that is that that is what I think is so new about television is that there's a hive mind that is at work creating a serialized drama, and it's not just it's not just a novelist sitting in a room by himself. It's it's all these people because the time is so short that you need all these minds at work, and the minds are completely different. You know, people love movies that I hate and hate movies that I love. And yet right. we're all in a room together. Pitching ideas Pitching to ideas other. and trying to string together, you know, a narrative. And it is such a, I, mean, I, I think it's a, such a modern idea, yeah. you know, um, and, uh, and, and maintaining the enthusiasm and the camaraderie and the team spirit while sitting on top of everything and trying to be the quality control, I mean, that's, that's, it's hard and it, it takes a certain skill set. And some people do it with intense competition. I try to do it with enthusiasm and trying to be as collaborative as I possibly can, sometimes more effectively than others. Would you say, Claire, is that on set? Oh, if yeah. you think of number one on the call sheet, is the trickle down of yeah. attitude? I, I th- you know, Claire and I are involved in some sort of telepathic experience with each other. Um, what is she know, thinking right now? What is she thinking? She's thinking, thank God I don't have to go back to work like Alex does next week. Exactly. That's exactly what I she's thinking. I have more right? weeks. Yes. She's got, she's got until September. Do you take in public commentary about your show and do you take it personally? I, I did the first year when they were all positive. Good. Smart. <laughs> if it's positive, it's true. It was. It had to be true. Totally. It had to be true. It was. It was fairly unanimous that first year, I must say. And and then things got you know progressively uglier. And I, I really did stop reading after season three. I, I do not read reviews. Uh, you know, there there are a couple of things I do read. You know, I tend to I tend to read the New York Times. So I will in your life. Yeah, I tend to read the New York Times every day. So I will check in with what the New York Times is saying. Um, and I also do. I do. I do read. Um, some reviews after the first episode every year just to get a sense of, you know, what smart people are thinking about the show. And, and it also offers the possibility to course correct if I see something in there that, that, I, that rings true. Have you ever done that? Um, you know, I, I'm, trying to think, I'm trying to think if there's a specific example of it. I think, I think that, uh, you know, in, in the third season, when Brody's absence became such a big deal and people were missing him and wondering where he was that I that we did bring him back in a way that felt more we, we brought him back a little a little bit earlier than we planned to and we made more of a meal of his return because mm-hmm. we knew we knew he was going to he was he was his his, his story arc was going to end that season and we felt like we owed our audience you know more of him before he left I'm sure you feel tremendous responsibility um to be accurate, there's a mental health community that I'm sure is very vocal in terms of watching. Um, there are times in which 
it seems different people's foibles um, are more apparent in certain seasons than others and sort of how you guys play with that. Uh, do you care? You know, when people will be like, well, I don't know. I mean, how come she seems okay now? Or, I mean, how much do you really, it's a TV show, right? right. So how much, not that you're, care about being respectful or disrespectful, but how much do you care about tracking? She was really into jazz at the beginning. Do right. we need to have jazz every time she's in her car now? Like sort of how do you track that stuff and, and is that important to you? Well, look, there, there are certain touchstones that you identify with a character and, 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 and Carrie Matheson, there are a number of them, jazz, her bipolar illness, her difficulty with relationships, her thriving in duplicitous situations. Yeah. You know, these are, these, are, these, are, these are the things that make up Carrie Matheson. And so we come back and we touch and we, you know, we explore a little bit and we go away from it. Um, you know, how much do I care? Well, I, I, I really care about telling a story about this person and how she has evolved as a character over the seasons. That's the great thing about doing serialized television. I mean, yeah. we, we get to tell, you know, you know a, a sort of a novella every year about these same people. And yeah. that is a privilege to do. Um, and we're incredibly lucky to tell one that, that people seem to respond to at some level. The best part of every season for me is that first day of production when you show up and there are all those trucks out there and there are all the actors there and you just realize that this is a company of people that have gotten together to do this thing. And it's, um, it's that, that is the most gratifying moment of every year. Thank you so much for being here, Alex. I'm so grateful to you. Totally my pleasure. It was a great conversation. All Thank right. You. Thank you for being here. If you want more information about my guests, go to the website, littleknownfactspodcast.com. I also wanted to tell you that there is now a new addition to the website. It is a button that says contributions. This podcast is a true labor of love, and I really, really want to keep doing it for a long time. So if you like listening as much as I love to do it, please feel free to contribute. It would mean the world to me. Also, on Twitter, you can find me at Alana Levine. Instagram is Little Known Facts Podcast, and on Facebook, Little Known Facts Podcast. You can also feel free to rate and review the show on the iTunes show page. This podcast is recorded at Hangar Studios in New York City. This episode was brought to you by Pro Media. Located in Times Square, Pro Media offers both production and post production services out of its beautiful studios in the heart of New York City. Pro Media Sound Vision. Find out more at promedia.nyc. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around, a watch she can wear every day from Movement. Whether your mom is into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, Movement has something she'll love. And right now, everything at Movement is up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale. A watch is a gift that celebrates all the time you spent with mom. And a Movement watch is even more than that. Movement uses industry-leading materials for their fresh modern watch designs, from technically complex ceramics to vintage-inspired style, all for an incredible value your wrist and wallet will both love. And with one-size-fits-all convenience and fast free shipping and returns, it's a stress-free shopping experience. Save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with Movement. Get up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com.